Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Doug Rao. Doug has spent the majority of his career in the grocery business, with most of that time spent at Trader Joe's. He was the president at Trader Joe's for his final 14 years there and was instrumental in helping take the company from a Southern California brand to the East Coast. There's no doubt Doug is a man on a mission. After a two-year fellowship at Harvard, Doug knew he had more to give. Doug and his team started a new nonprofit called The Daily Table, a grocery store chain focused on bringing nutrient-rich food to underserved inner-city populations. It takes less than a second to hear the compassion and care Doug has for serving humanity. And if starting a grocery store isn't tough enough, Doug is the CEO of Conscious Capitalism, the nonprofit organization behind the Conscious Capitalism movement, which is focused on elevating humanity through business. I am so excited to be able to share with you the wisdom and love that is Doug Rao. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Good morning, Doug. It is a wonderful, just a wonderful opportunity to be able to spend time with you and uh, and join us for this podcast. I know our listeners are very much looking forward to hearing more about you and your story. Uh, much has been said about you in the news and all of the great things that you're doing. And with that, I want to jump right into talking about uh, this new venture that uh, that you've uh, this this new journey of yours that started. Uh, I know a few years ago, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, the first daily table store opened up June of last year, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, would love for you to share with us just a little bit about the daily table and what you're up to right now. Well, sure. Well, thanks, Brian. Well, it's great to be here. I, uh, you know, I had a long career with Trader Joe's, was there 31 years and spent uh, uh, 14 years as president. And when I uh, graduated from Trader Joe's, because I'm not really a fan of retirement in the classical sense, so when I when I left, I I, I told everyone this is a graduation party, not a retirement. So we're <laughs> going to be celebrating, not uh, you know talking about me as though I've died. Um, and uh, uh, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to be doing. I knew that I wanted to stay engaged with the world, and, you know, put uh, my experience and, and talents to you know probably some charitable or philanthropic or you know, work in some way that would help bring value. And so what happened was, uh, uh, you know, I sat on a number of boards and uh, uh, was engaged with that. When I heard about a fellowship that Harvard had just started, it was in the middle of its first year, called the Advanced Leadership Initiative. And it, the idea was it took people that were at the end of a career with 25 or so years of experience in senior management and helped them uh, transition to tackling some social ills at scale. And that was kind of how they, how they uh, uh, positioned it. And I looked at that and I said, huh, I wonder what, that sounds interesting. What's that really mean? So the more I learned about it, the more I liked. And what I really particularly liked 
was that it was designed around taking these executives, whether they're in public or, or private, uh, uh, you know, realm and giving them the run of the university, whether it's, you know, the law school, the school of public health, the business school, wherever it was, work with faculty, audit classes, work with students. And at the end of this fellowship, you have to stand and deliver in front of the faculty at Harvard and your cohort. What are you going to do about a problem? Not what did you learn? Not, you know, what, what, you know, what paper you're going to write, but what are you going to do about this? Because the idea is we let you into this program, gave you the run of the university with the idea that you're going to take all this experience you've got and you're going to go put it to use um, tackling a major social ill. So for me, I had no idea what I was going to do. And, uh, you know, I looked at a number of things, but I, what I came back to was long career in the food industry, really understand the food system uh, fairly well. And I was getting these mailers in the mail from Feeding America, the big marketing arm of, of uh, the larger food banks in America. Yeah. And uh, it was saying that one in six Americans are hungry. And I just, I just, it just floored me. It's like, how can that be true? I mean, we're the richest nation in the history of the world in food production. So how can there be one in six Americans that are hungry? Well, you know, like most things, you know, you start to dive into it and you have some real learnings along the way. So one of my first learnings was that, well, hunger in America isn't like hunger that has been experienced, you know, throughout human history. It's not a shortage of calories. It's a shortage of nutrients. And hence, obesity is the face of hunger in America. Uh, so we're getting enough calories, but they're empty calories. And we're, we're not able to afford to eat the foods we should be eating, fruits and vegetables, dairy, proteins, you know, things that are nutrient-rich, uh, due to economics. The good stuff. And, yeah, the good stuff. And, and, and the problem is that, that particularly as you, you know, you've got one in six uh, Americans that are economically challenged. They're, they're, they're technically what are called food insecure, meaning that they make really bad nutritional decisions based upon their their income uh, or they skip some meals so i thought well then hello look we got the food you know in, in america what do we do to get this good food to people that need it and so daily tables really designed around two other insights one was that the standard nonprofit model is one where people get funding for delivery of their mission. And what that means is, it's a subtle but important distinction. What that means is that 75% of an executive director's time in a nonprofit is usually spent in fundraising. Right. It's spent in actual events or cultivating the relationships, uh, et cetera. It's all around the fact that, that Philanthropic dollars is the, are the, is the air we breathe, and our management team is devoted to making sure we get those dollars. Then with those dollars, we now will utilize them and put them to use in our mission. Well, to me, it just seems there's something fundamentally flawed in that from a what I'll just call 
you know, capital efficiency model, which is that I know that, for instance, most businesses that are for-profit businesses, the marketplace would have punished them to the point where they probably would have disappeared if management's time was spent, 75% of it was spent not on running the business, right? not on how to serve our customers or create better products or how to innovate. You know, these are the things that the marketplace, it's tough enough to win 100% of your time spent on that uh, to, to compete and grow. I can't imagine if 25% of your time was spent on it. So sure. I said, there's just something flawed in this. I just, I just, I just don't want to create a, a business where 75% of our time is not spent on the actual business. So what Daily Table was designed around is creating a model that's a nonprofit but gets funding by delivery of its mission instead of for delivery of its mission. And I'll talk about that in just a second, which is it came hand in hand within the third major insight, which came from both speaking with the head of Feeding America, uh, Vicky Escara at the time, and uh, focus groups down here in the inner city in Boston. And that was the big aha was that people are even hungrier to keep their dignity than their health. That they will not shop somewhere where they feel, or they will not go and utilize a soup kitchen, a food pantry, even a food bank, if in any way they feel embarrassed, stigmatized, um, ashamed, they just, they won't do it. And so as a result, we, uh, you know, we're having a fairly large part of the population that needs these services, not utilize them. So to me, uh, retail has that advantage of because the customer employs the power of the purse, they have the power and people with power have dignity. So in a free marketplace of voluntary exchange, a retail setting, in other words, people choose you over somebody else. So you've got to earn their patronage every day. It gives them a sense of honor. So the idea with Daily Table is how do we create, <coughs> excuse me, how do we create a sort of hunger relief healthcare agency that will masquerade as a retail store so that when people come in to shop, they buy, you know, product, fruits and vegetables and grab and go meals and, you know, dairy and other groceries. But all of it at prices that they can afford on SNAP or, you know, supplemental uh, income food stamps, in other words. Uh, and they do it in an environment where they feel empowered. So Daily Table is really this experiment to see if we made food that was tasty and delicious and nutritional, economically agnostic to, you know, the uh, other options that they have in the neighborhood that are, that are less nutritious putting it nicely, uh, would they choose it? And would they feel that in a shopping environment that this was something they could come and do and, and not feel embarrassed by? So we're, we're 10 months in, just about, and I'm happy to say the response of the community has been overwhelmingly positive. It has, uh, uh, we had in the last oh, six weeks or so, I think we've had three record sales weeks and the ones that weren't were very close to it. We've had record sales counts, our average transactions up, which matters because the community we're serving is economically challenged. And 
since we opened, our average transaction size has gone up 65%, which means that this is a community that doesn't have disposable income for food. When they buy it, they eat it because they can't afford to waste it. Right. So we're becoming a larger part of their diet. That's the critical thing. There's not a single item we carry in the store that doesn't meet tough nutritional guidelines. For instance, we don't carry orange juice. Why? Because our nutritional task force set of the world-class group of medical education experts here in Boston, Harvard School of Public Health and Children's Hospital and Boston Medical Center, et cetera, have said orange juice is just like soda. It's just sugar with a little vitamin C. Um, if you really want it, eat an orange. But it's all sugar, no fiber. It actually, the body won't metabolize it, store it as fat because it can't handle that much sugar hitting the system at once. And hence, you know, rise in obesity by sugar, sugar infused, uh, you know, whether it's potatoes, white flour, or, or just straight sugar, uh, our bodies take these and can only handle so much of it before it has to store it in the liver as fat. And so um, we don't carry it. We only carry those food items that will move you forward nutritionally. So anyway, that's what Daily Table is all about in a nutshell. There's a lot of other factors that go into it and a lot of learnings about what are the differences between a nonprofit and a for-profit and uh, what that means in a community. But uh, that's, that's, that's the essence of it. Well, thank you for that. I, I, uh, I want to get back to that, but I want to I touch on something you said that I think is pretty profound, and that is the experience, the fellowship at Harvard and standing in front of the faculty and them challenging all of those who went through the fellowship program, what are you going to do really capitalizes on this mindset of if you're going to take the time and learn all of this and explore and have run of the campus as you had and learn all of this to do nothing with it would be like uh, not learning it at all. And so that challenge of what are you going to do? Um, I, I just find so powerful and congratulations on accepting the challenge and doing something very powerful with it. Um, I think it's fantastic. And I have to assume that that mindset and that challenge is likely a, a big contributor to what you've chosen to, to do with that knowledge. Um, I would say so. I'd say probably so. I remember when I was about 16 years old reading in a book, kind of a, a, a book on Zen or something that uh, this little aphorism that said to know and not to do is not to know. And I thought about that, you know, 16 years old, I'm thinking about that going, is that really true? I mean, but knowledge just for the sake of knowledge, isn't that good? But there was something in it that really struck me as, yeah, but to know, but not to then have it integrated into our into our being as our into our action is just the same as not knowing it. What's the difference? Yep. Um, yep. And it, it, it just has stuck with me um, as one of those sort of uh, truisms of a dilemma. You know, it's kind of a paradox in a way um, because knowledge is power, but only if we then put it to use. Yep. And um, so I would say that, yeah, in this case with uh, the Harvard program, to me, it was from the very beginning what attracted me to it. And I thought the power of it was that action orientation of an expectation that you're going to do something here. As you spent that time at Harvard, obviously not everybody uh, has had an opportunity to spend time there. 
What was the most surprising uh, revelation, most surprising experience? What was most surprising about spending time at Harvard? Yeah, I would say in all honesty, it had been a while since I'd spent a lot of time with uh, students. I'd say that my, now this goes back six years now. This was uh, in January of 2010 that I uh, started this program, that my coming face-to-face with what now is a truism we all sort of know, but I hadn't really experienced it or read that much about it, was that millennials today, and that's mostly who's in school right now, particularly in, in, in graduate, like business school and stuff right, like that. Right. They have, they're what I like to call practical idealists. They're not, they have the same sort of idealism that I had in the 60s about change the world, but they're much more practical about it. They really understand that, that, yes, they want to do well, they want to do good, but they want to do well also. That they want to go get a job, but they want that job to be meaningful. They want it to, make, to be a positive contributor to society. It's not just enough that it's going to get them a high income. Now, I know that I'm, you know, this is a broad generalization, but I would say that as a general class, I was astonished that Harvard Business School, which is one of the bastions of, you know, where investment, you know, business and capital, a lot of people think, you know, a lot of the, the seeds of the problem we faced in the Great Recession came out of this sort of ideology, that in that school, that the social enterprise conference was one of the most powerful and exciting things happening that year. And this was about people that were going into, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, things that would be impactful to society. So one of the big surprises was that I was with people that really cared about making a difference in the world, not just, you know, furthering their career. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Just great. The sell by or best buy dates that are printed on the foods we buy from our supermarkets and grocery stores. Um, what have you learned about those dates and how that has impacted uh, consumers' perception of food? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that in all honesty, not one in 100 Americans really understand. Um, I think most Americans, I'd say my kids, and it doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated, if you're rich or you're poor, most of us look at a sell-by date and think, I don't know if it's safe to eat it past that. If it's at its sell-by or best-by date, I'm throwing it out after that. And the reality is, if you even look at the actual terminology, you realize that doesn't really make much sense. If I'm a retailer and I'm willing to sell you this product on this day, I don't expect you to run home and drink the gallon of milk that day. <laughs> right. But yet we as consumers, we as customers have nothing else to guide us. So we have had this default of falling back to, and it also comes around just a general sense of, I don't know if my food system is safe. I mean, we don't trust water in America anymore. Sure. One of the crazy things I remember when uh, uh, bottled water was first presented, Evian was first presented to me as a buyer at Trader Joe's back in the early 80s. And we took it to a taste. I remember just laughing, going, 
do these people, I mean, I don't know about France, but do they know the water's safe to drink in America? I mean, it's like, <laughs> who on earth would buy bottled water in a plastic <laughs> bottle, spend all this money on it, and get it right out of any tap in America safe? Uh, was I wrong? I mean, wow. You know, the, the number of people today that don't feel that their water is safe coming out of the tap is, is a pretty staggering percentage. Yeah. And so in the same way, we really don't trust eating food past its sell-by date or its best-by date. Now, you know, I spent several years, you know, basically uh, uh, in dialogue is a nice way to say it with the media uh, about this, arguing with them basically that, hey, food is safe past this display code. You guys are calling them expiration dates. They're not. Food doesn't expire on the sell-by date or the best-by date. You know, by the way, when, when food's expired, it has no more life in it. You know, it's like your credit card or your plant or your dog. If they've expired, heaven forbid, there's no more life in them. Right. Well, food, food at its sell-by date has lots of life in it. It's still healthy. The true expiration date, the time when it's like, hey, you shouldn't eat that. Like it's now gotten to the point where, yeah, you probably, probably shouldn't eat that. Um, that's much later. And businesses give customers a large and conservative window to use product up. The very reason that they don't want them to have a negative experience, because one, they might get sued, or two, their brand will take a hit, right? Like, ugh, don't, don't go there. Their products, I don't know, I didn't feel so good after I ate that. It didn't taste so good. So Harvard, uh, Harvard and um, the National Resource Defense Council, uh, I got the Harvard uh, director of their food law and policy clinic at Harvard Law School interested in this subject. They did a very deep dive on this, a 40-page document, very well-researched, called The Dating Game. And anyone that's interested in this subject ought to Google NRDC and The Dating Game. And what you'll run in, what you'll get is a 40-page 40 40-page 40 document, but the NRDC website also has an executive brief. It's like three pages. It kind of summarizes the whole thing. And here I'll put it all in one elevator sentence. There is no relationship between display codes and when a food is actually bad. Display codes are at best peak flavor at best. So and so we are throwing out, we are throwing out millions of pounds of perfectly good food all because we have put code dates on that we don't understand that are really about product rotation for a store and from a manufacturer. And by the way, the vast majority of them, when I started in the grocery business in the seventies, there were no open code dates on the vast majority of these products. So the 40% this, this all came later on. Yeah. yeah. So the 40% of food roughly, I think is the, is the data point yeah. uh, of food that is wasted, that is thrown out annually in the United States uh, I know it's an imperfect science, but what percentage of that food do you think is thrown out, wasted as a result of the not understanding of these these display codes? Is it a hundred percent of that? Is it fifty percent of that? Oh what, no, what? no, no, no! Oh gosh, it's 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 a small percentage of it, and here's why: uh, food waste in America is like a barbell in a graph. There's a lot of it that occurs at the farm and in the fields and the manufacturing. And there's a lot of it that occurs in our houses. It turns out the average home usually wastes about 20% of what they buy. 
Okay. And then when, when people hear that, they go, oh, no, that's not me. I mean, I'm really frugal. But then you go and you research, and researchers have followed, and they find out, well, you know, you cut off the ends of the skinny, and you cut off far too much of the of the, the lettuce at the end, and, oh, you know, that you know that, that leftover you thought you were going to, but then you forgot you were going out to dinner, so you don't know, and you throw it out. Right. You know, it, it, you end up, at the end of the day, that most of us, on average, waste 20, 25% of what we buy. This is staggering. It's like leaving one out of every five grocery bags at the store and just forgetting about it. You paid for it, but you, you just left it there. And so, uh, and then it's about the same, you know, the same sort of situation you've got at, at the fields. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, why food is left in the field. Mostly it's over the fact that food now is so ubiquitous and cheap that labor is more expensive than food. So you, you only spend the labor to go out and pick the product when the vast majority of it is ripe and ready to be picked. So after that, as the other stuff that was immature ripens, it's just not worth the labor to send it back out again to do that, you know, lesser second harvest. And, and you're literally just plowing it under. So um, at home, we know that a large percentage of the food that's wasted uh, is because no one plans their meals. They buy far more than... Uh, they should have purchased because they, they don't really sit down and think about planning out what am I going to have? How many days this week am I really eating at home? How many meals are we eating at home? What food do we need to, for that? So no one really does that. They just go and they just get stuff, you know, because food, it turns out, is relatively cheap in American society. We pay, for instance, between the time I started at Trader Joe's and now we as a population pay a third less for food than we did then. And we pay less than any people in the history of the world have ever paid as part of their disposable income. Wow. So we don't value it as much, quite frankly. Things that become ubiquitous and cheap aren't valued. I want to talk about a comment you made, one of the insights as you uh, were growing Daily Table. And this, this insight around dignity and giving the consumer a sense of dignity and giving them the, the, the power to choose. And I want to relate that to a comment I heard you sh uh, share. And forgive me, I don't know if it was on a uh, presentation you were giving or on an NPR uh, bit. Uh, it, the, 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 the comment was that the context of the transaction is just as, if not more important than the content of the transaction is, is that linked to this dignity concept or are they completely unrelated? Well, I think they're definitely linked. I think that they are, uh, they're not identical, but here's how they're linked. Um, I believe that today more than ever that values are uh, Trump value. Oftentimes that, you know, people will not shop at a, business to save a few pennies if they think that business is not treating their employees properly if it was you know uh, uh, you know child labor or you know sweatshop sort of situations or it's environmentally destructive in other words values will trump just a straight economic value in the same and context will trump content and so to me, those are related because dignity is a core value. It's something not just as an intellectual value, you know, like truth or liberty or something, but we know from psychological studies that it's 
core need. It's one of those really core, as Maslow would say, one of those, those bottom of the pyramid, that sense of, of, uh, dignity primary to us, that sense of, of, uh, well-being to ourself that we, we will trade, will trade off things to keep our dignity that we know are maybe not in our best interest on the short run, but between the two, we will, we, we would rather provide for our family food that's actually less nutritious than suffer a feeling of, I can't provide for my family, or I have to go and basically be embarrassed or ashamed and, 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 and have a transaction that lessens my dignity uh, in order to do that. And so I think that, that those two are actually related because it's a core value that we share as human beings is that need for dignity, that sense that, you know, that I want to feel valued. I want to feel seen. I want to feel uh, appreciated. And it's one that, that I do believe that good retailers, when they're doing things right, uh, are set up to, to generate, that people at the end of the day felt seen, they feel empowered, they feel heard, uh, that I think that as compared to, for instance, there's something inherent in a donor-recipient relationship that has a power differential you can never get away from, that is the recipient is never equal to the person that's the giver because they're the one in need. Right. And as such, uh, there's something inherent in most of our nonprofit systems that, that create a donor recipient relationship. Um, and by the way, just as a little side note on this 60 minutes, Oh gosh, might've been eight or nine months ago when there was that first major influx of Syrian uh, refugees that went into Jordan mm-hmm. and the UN had this crisis of feeding them. So the UN food bank was getting stretched because they were, you know, suddenly more than a million people they had to feed out in the middle of a desert and they had these huge tent camps. And, and so how do they do this? So they set up these things where they're just, you know, people come by and here's your little pail. And I, we, we slot, put the slot in others and we give you chips to that, to come by and get this. And what they're finding is people weren't participating. They, they, they felt ashamed. They felt, and, and these are people in, in dire need. What they did was, and, and what 60 Minutes reported on, was they set up a store where people with that same chit could come buy a certain amount of product and go back and prepare it for their family. You know, kind of, you know, do simple rudimentary cooking or preparation. And that act of feeling I provided for my family, I got to choose what you know was it was it uh, you know white rice or some lentil power powder or was it a this or a that and that simple choice they had participation rates uh, skyrocket and a sense of well of, of not well being but a, a higher sense of um, I'm providing for my family I'm leading a little more normalized life right here in the here in this refugee camp I think is a very profound statement to the need for us to, to listen to. And tune into the fact that if we're going to try to provide sustainable value to people in need, we have to listen to and do it in a way that builds them up and doesn't lessen them. Because you may do it once or twice, but it can't be sustainable. 
To do it under any period of time, it's got to be one that builds up their sense of self-worth. As you've been building and growing Daily Table, obviously this mission is incredibly personal for you. You speak of it with incredible passion. I have to assume that the leadership team and those who have joined you on this journey, Rudy and Freddie and Ismail, are as equally passionate about it. My question is for the team members, those that are, you know, boots on the ground in the stores, how have you been able to connect the purpose of what you're doing to these folks and and how are they enrolling in what you're up to? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Now, first of all, we hire from the community. So 80% of our employees come from like a mile or a mile half radius of the store. So in a way, our target audience is actually our employees. So first of all, they get it because they live it in most instances. Many of our employees are on SNAP, you know, food stamps. They come from a tough neighborhood. They are, you know, um, people that the majority of the jobs we've created, some 30, 32 jobs, whatever it is that we have in the store, now, the majority of those are full-time, and of those full-time, they're working 40, 45 hours a week. I would say the majority of them have second and third jobs because economically they need them just to, just, just to, to survive here in Boston, um, which is a, a different sort of story on the cost of living in an inner city. Um, but what we do is we, of course, we've got chalkboards and billboards and story, you know, we want every one of our customers that walks in to get the message. Here's who we are. Here's how we do business. Here's why, but not by beating them over the head, but by the positive sort of stuff about how they can, you know, we're here to provide delicious, tasty, fresh, convenient, you know, truly affordable meals for all and to do it in a manner that will move you forward in your life, not hold you back. And so we've talked to, we had meet, we hold meetings with our full-time staff, with all of our employees. We'll have regular meetings where we talk about the mission, where we ask them to challenge us on where is it we're not living up to our mission? Where is it that, you know, things on the chalkboard, if we're not careful, you know, get glossed over and are we living that? Because the real question is, is the mission alive in our culture? And because culture is that unique DNA that every organization has that is your signature. And if our mission isn't alive in our culture, then our mission isn't alive. Then, Then we're not living it. And so it's really important to us to do cultural checks, you know, uh, as well as just, you know, if you ask somebody, Hey, what's our mission? And they can repeat it. You know, that's a nice step. That's good. Put it in your own words, but you know, that could be it. but then is the next question is, and where is it you feel that we're best living it? And where is it you feel we got room for improvement? If you were king for the day, what change would you make to, to have us better live that mission? And these are the questions we like to engage our, 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 our staff with because, you know, my opinion about success is it's not people at the top can they repeat it, but, you know, the newest employee at the lowest pay level, do they feel it? Do they live it? If the answer is yes, 
I regard that as success. What's what's one of the I, I have to boy over the the last ten months or so, and even previous to the store opening, there's probably been some amazing stories, some lives changed, uh, families impacted in a positive way. What, what what's what's share with us one that has stuck with you? What, what one of the great ones up till now? And I'm sure they're all great. Well, you know, I guess um, you know I'll, I'll just go to. A customer story, which is that, uh, uh, you know, we, we had only been open a couple of weeks and, um, a lady came into the store and she came to the store and, uh, she burst in, into tears and just started crying, you know, and, and one of our store person came over and said, Oh dear, what, you know, what, what's the matter? She said, you know, uh, can I help you? Is there, is there something we can do to make it right? She goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I can afford this food. Wow. I can afford this food. This is the first time I've been in a grocery store where I can afford what I should be eating. I'm diabetic. I, you know, I can't eat the foods my doctors say I need to eat to stay alive. My kids are pre-diabetic. You know, they're going to walk down the same road I've walked down if we can't do something. We have not been able to buy the foods we should be eating because we can't afford them. Wow. I now can. Wow. And, you know, it was one of those goosebump moments where you, you just went, Oh my God, this made it all worthwhile. Absolutely. You know? Wow. And I will say, I, I just said a little more upbeat, uh, you know, in, uh, though I regard that as upbeat, but in a little different way. So we, uh, for instance, we go up to the produce market, the big main hub where all the produce comes come and we'll get there like nine o'clock the end of their day. And we'll often collect the product that they had that they couldn't sell still perfectly good product. They would have been happy to sell it to a, a, a supermarket, you know, an hour earlier, but it's, it's left over and they can't hold it till the next day. Like if it's raspberries or blackberries or something. So we got all these blackberries in a nice big, uh, uh, uh quart tray, the, the larger one. And we sold them for like, Oh, I forget. I was 99 cents or dollar 49, whatever it was. I mean, a phenomenal price. And this lady, um, walks over and she's standing there she's looking at it and she goes, Oh, wow. I said, what do you think? I mean, that's pretty amazing. And she goes, I've never been able to afford a Blackberry in my life. Wow. I said, wow. I said, well, then you ought, you, you ought to splurge. And she goes, <laughs> she, she grabbed two or three of them and said, my kids are eating Blackberries today. <laughs> and so it was just one of those fun uh, uh, moments where you realized, you know, it um, uh, it's pretty apparent to me that the only difference between uh, what I'll call low wealth and high wealth neighborhoods is income because they're aware of what they need to eat. They care about their kids every bit as much as everybody else does. And they feel that sense of despair that sets in when you can't take care of the people you love. And uh, it is very gratifying to feel that and to see and to watch daily uh, people come in and go, God bless you. You know, uh, like I said, the community's response has just been um, humbling and it's overwhelmingly positive response to what we're doing. So uh, obviously with this early success that you're having, I have to assume the goal is to continue to open up additional locations uh, in other uh, perhaps parts of uh, the inner city of Boston or in other cities around the country. Uh, can you share anything as to what the the future looks like for Daily Table? 
Yeah, certainly. Well, you know, obviously you, you do a proof of concept. You kind of get the pilot up. You want to iron the bugs out and get the kinks, you know, worked out as best you can. So you yep. don't just simply multiply those as you expand. Right. And um, so we're, you know, and the, with the understanding they'll never be worked all the way out. But because uh, that's the nature of, uh, of, of the marketplace. But uh, we are right now actively looking and uh, uh, seeking a second site here in Boston. And we hope to have that open, you know, by uh, early fall. And we will, you know, then look at, uh, you know, a second metropolitan area to go into in the United States. And we've had probably without exaggeration, about 500 inquiries from different cities, communities and towns around America that have read about or heard about this and have said, we need one of these. What do we do to get you here? Everything from councilmen in San Francisco to the mayor office in Los Angeles to, you know, Detroit and Baton Rouge and some of the other areas that are maybe more obvious, but little smaller communities too, that just, Hey, you know, how on earth do we do, do we get you to this small community? You know, and, our, and, and the answer is unfortunate that, you know, the need is tremendous. Our ability to, to grow will depend upon, you know, we need funding for that initial growth. We certainly hope if our model is set right, that with a runway to get up in the community and get sales and have people be aware of you, that you get to a break-even point where each individual store more or less uh, becomes self-sustaining. Right. And uh, if it even gets close to that, it will be, you know, like the Holy Grail because there's not another hunger relief agency in America that, that, that is anything near self-sustaining on its own revenue. I mean, they're certainly sustaining on the, on the philanthropic charitable donations they get. But because they run off a charity and philanthropy, they're not scalable because, you know, you can't do a 2x, 5x, 10x uh, uh, of the locations if it takes the same 5 or 10x of, uh, you know, annual giving. So Daily Table is designed around how do we break that? How do we maybe create a market-driven, you know, business-run nonprofit that gets to a break-even point by delivering you know, great values. And the reason that the secret to it is, of course, you get your cost of goods down uh, by recovering food that would have been wasted. Yep, absolutely. So so if you can get your cost of goods sold down low enough, then you'll be able to, you know, break even on the revenue, even though you're charging so little for it. So, you know, for us, our idea is to, you know, right now look toward, uh, a second site here in Boston, and then hope that early to mid next year, we'll be looking at a second major metropolitan area to go into that uh, would uh, uh, basically validate that Daily Table doesn't work just in Boston, you know, but would also work in New York or Chicago, Detroit or L.A. or San Francisco, wherever. Well, I know we only have a few minutes left, and I, I don't want to minimize uh, some additional impact that you're having in the world as if, you know, what you're doing with Daily Table isn't enough. You're also the CEO of Conscious Capitalism and a movement that has, in my opinion, a tremendous impact, uh, has had a tremendous impact and will continue to impact uh, the future of capitalism as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, socioeconomic system the human race has ever come up with. How is it that you are able to continue to persist to do things like daily table, to be a, a, a founding another 
grocery store chain, uh, and to also have time to serve as the CEO of, of this conscious capitalism group, which is, it's just awe-inspiring. How, how do you do all this, Doug? Well, um, well, first of all, I will say that um, because it is a demanding uh, job at Daily Table and because conscious capitalism deserves and is a job and is a growing movement and a growing organization, I'm honored that we are actually adding a uh, co-CEO who will be working full time because I've been I've been from the very beginning uh, stated I can only work uh, uh, part time with uh my role at conscious capitalism which was appropriate till now because the you know the organization has other uh you know staff and employees and and my role in in guiding and helping get the board's direction you know implemented uh wasn't a full-time job though it you know some weeks it was and other weeks it wasn't uh i i'm very excited over the a co-ceo role where i get to continue to you know work you know 15 20 hours a week on average and, you know, I probably put in about 30 hours a week uh, with Daily Table. Uh, so I, I flunked retirement entirely. And uh, but I'm but I'm but I'm happy doing it. I every you know, every day you get up, you look in the mirror and you go, you know, I'm so blessed. I, I, I get to do and get engaged and be involved with things that really matter to me, uh, making a difference in a way that that hopefully will will help. Um not just, you know, in daily table and the, what I'll call the micro, which is down into the inner cities and how do we get, you know, food to people, but also the macro with conscious capitalism, which is how do we find a better way to have business be a force for good and, 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 and make sure that, you know, some of the storyline about maximize shareholder return or the short termism that uh, we fight with in capitalism doesn't become you know, the overwhelming narrative. And instead, we allow for the tremendous force of humanity channeled through this amazing invention of capitalism, uh, elevate us and truly allow for us to create workplaces where, as Rosh Hashodi and Bob Chapman's book says, where everybody matters, workplaces where we can bring our whole South to work, where where meaningful engagement with the world can occur and have it be a win-win where, and we know that from, from many studies and, 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 and other uh, uh, anecdotal stories that you can thrive while you're optimizing your stakeholder, you know, while you're optimizing your interests with your customers, your employees, the community, the environment, and yes, of course, your investors, and that actually you get a higher return when you have, you know, raving fans and engaged employees and communities that love you because your marketing costs drop, your productivity skyrockets, you know, et cetera. So that, you know, you end up with win-wins. You end up with, with truly virtuous cycles and circles instead of vicious ones. Doug, I cannot thank you enough given how busy your schedule is uh, to spend the time that you did with us. Thank you. What you're doing is awe-inspiring. Uh, I, I know the opportunities that I've had personally to spend time with you have been a gift, and I look forward to many more. Uh, for those of you that want to learn more about what Doug is up to with Daily Table, please visit dailytable.org. And for those of you that want to investigate more about conscious capitalism, that website is consciouscapitalism.org. Doug, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
Brian, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you much. Be well. You too. Until next time, thank you for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, yscouts.com forward slash podcast. There were quite a few questions I didn't have the opportunity to address during my time with Doug. I'm guessing you may have a burning question or two as well. Doug has agreed to answer any further questions from our listeners, so please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com with your questions, and I will forward them on to Doug. If you enjoyed Doug's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig as well. Megan French Dunbar, co-founder of Conscious Company Magazine, Louis Efron, author of How to Find a Job, Career, and Life You Love, and Ann Rhodes, former Chief People Officer at Southwest Airlines and the author of Built on Values, are just a few of the many episodes you can find at yscouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.